This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast is insurance working for Canadians. Western University climate adaptation expert Jason Thistlethwaite helps us understand the Canada disaster insurance system and how it fails those impacted by natural disasters. Are you okay with switching seats on planes and how about off-roading? And what can you do if you get hacked out of your Facebook account? Hank the Hacker gives us excellent tips for dealing with Facebook and more to avoid getting hacked and what to deal with if you do get locked out as we continue our summer of cyber safety on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. In Nova Scotia, there was a story that I watched on Global News about a lady and her house was basically pushed off the foundation. The basement was full of water and she said, insurance is probably not going to cover this. And then I remember with a Calgary flood and how on one side of the street, you had one insurance company that was basically working to cover everybody in the flood. And you had a different insurance company that was on the other side of the street saying, well, your water didn't come up through the sewer. It came in through the window. Therefore, you're on your own. And so we wanted to get into a conversation to understand this. I don't like how insurance works today. I don't like, I don't understand the circumstances, but I don't like how an insurance company can just basically pull out of a place like Florida because they're like, yeah, we're not doing business here anymore. I feel like there is a little bit, and I'm a capitalist and I'm saying this, but I do feel like we have a responsibility to do good business that's accessible to everybody who wants it. And that doesn't mean you have to sell a really crappy cheap car because you want to sell a Lambo. It just means that it has to be reasonably accessible. And that's just where I land. And maybe it's integrity around business or maybe I'm living a pipe dream. I don't know. But the reality is, is in today's world, insurance seems to really pick and choose risk, right? And it doesn't seem like insurance is actually insurance anymore. It's not... It's not this overarching umbrella. It's so broken down into subsections. Maybe they're just figuring it out, but they're making money. They invest your money to make money, and that's kind of how this all works. Jason Thistlethwaite is with us, School of Environment professor um, at the University of Waterloo. And you've spent a ton of time, in fact, way too much time, safe to say, since you started in all this, um, looking at the cost of environmental disasters like floods, all those things, um, on the economics of business, including insurance. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I'm, I'm like you. It's frustrating when you assume a market for something that you want isn't available. When you want to go get insurance for your newly renovated basement because you heard your neighbor had water in their basement, And the insurance company says to you, well, we're not going to sell that to you. Or, yeah, we'll sell it to you. It's going to be very expensive. And we're only going to cover $25,000 worth of damage, which really isn't going to do that new suite or that new, uh, you know, room in your basement um, isn't going to cover the damage. So I think it's frustrating. And I think people's um, uh, complaints about this are uh, completely legitimate. And and the way you framed uh, this discussion, Shane, I think is the right way. I think there's an opportunity here to push back a little bit on what we're hearing out of places like Florida and and California where insurers are pulling out to ask, well, why are you doing this? What exactly is going on? What is the compelling business reason why you're doing this? And what are the steps that we need to do as voters, as property owners uh, to stop this? And and it's that opaque nature, which has left me um, a little frustrated. 
I can't be the only one that has no idea what my health insurance actually covers. Now, in today's world of technology, you have an app, you can type in the thing, you put in your provider, how much it is, it'll tell you what it covers. So you can get the answer when I my daughter needs a knee brace because she got hit hard playing football last week. It didn't happen. That was just an example. She's fine, just to be clear. Um, I think we get it right when you go buy your car insurance and they say, glasses extra, would you like glass coverage? Um, or they say, you know, you can have public liability uh, or you can have collision. But when something like hail comes along or flood damage in your car, then it turns into this gray area. And I don't think that we can call it home insurance when it's like, part of your home insurance, right? And these things, I just think that there's an integrity problem uh, with this. And then you, it gets exaggerated by what's going on in the weather today, because it seems like with all things that have changed in the last bunch of years, weather-wise, that we do have more sensors than ever before. Are we actually having more storms than ever before? Are we just more aware of it? That's probably debatable. What's not debatable are the tangible numbers of the storms are hotter, they're colder, they're hitting harder, the cost goes up too. But I can't handle not asking this question in this conversation, just to be clear, Jason, is that the cost of inflation, the cost of replacing things, that's a government problem. That's not an insurance problem. And are the insurance industry should take a big bullet here. But maybe they're not the only ones. What do you see? No, that's right. I think okay. So let's 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 pick apart a few of uh, the the things that you spoke about there, um, and I'll start with uh, the latter point on just what is going on. Why are these insurers all of a sudden raising these red flags about coverage and saying we're no longer willing to place coverage in places like Florida and California? And don't get me wrong, it's happening in in Canada. Um, you know, for the longest time, we didn't have overland flood insurance. So uh, what the market does to a certain extent can feel quite arbitrary uh, to. Um, a, a customer, right? We didn't have coverage that when the water comes from a river and through your basement window um, into your basement, it didn't cover it. Now we do have that coverage, but it's not widely available, and it tends to be available basically for people who aren't aren't at the highest risk, which isn't isn't exactly what we need. So there's a few things going on here. First, of course, we have climate change. We have increases in the frequency and intensity of extreme weather. That's one thing, but it's but but that is not um, just the main thing driving this. We have a few other things that are perpetuating that. One is development in dumb areas. Increasingly, we're developed. We, we continue to allow development in risky areas, places like floodplains. Um, these are these are low-lying areas. They're along rivers. Pe hey, people like it. Look right? what I just wrote down, just as you were speaking before you said it was floodplains. So yes, keep going. Yeah, yeah exactly right. Um, and people and it, it's tough to stop development in these types of areas, right? For think about a municipality, they rely on property taxes to fix your potholes and and uh, maintain your parks. Well, the property tax revenue from a nice place along the water is going to, you know, bring in uh, quite a bit of revenue. So you got development in, in dumb areas. The second is, or sorry, the third is, is that we've got these infrastructure problems. Our infrastructure is simply failing. It's getting old and it's incredibly expensive to maintain. So here I'm talking about basement flooding, which is arguably Canada's climate, uh, most significant climate risk. Uh, flooding in general is Canada's most common and, and costly yeah. hazard. So we've got infrastructure failing. And lastly, just simply the cost of housing. Um, it's very expensive to build a house. And so what that means is that a lot of trades are going into uh, to housing and so on. But 
Think about reconstruction, you know, refixing a basement. The same pressures are on that part of the sector. So this is all driving um, the cost of, that's driving the cost of rebuilding up and it's driving the cost of, of what insurers are, are facing up. But you're right, it isn't just insurers. A lot of those things are government responsibilities. So I, I think we, we can talk a little bit about, you know, who's responsible for what and how that responsibility um, needs to be divided because I do think there's a bit of a misallocation ongoing there. But back to the, the point where you started, and, and this is where it gets ultimately frustrating, and Canadian regulators are onto this, right? The one thing that people tend not to do, and, and everybody knows it, is they're not going to take out your insurance contract and read the fine print of exactly what is covered and what is not as covered, right? This is technical knowledge. It's hard to understand. You can have a broker or someone explain it to you, and still, you know, you're kind of jogging your brain saying, okay, so what is, what's overland flooding? What's What's basement flooding? What's sewer backup? What's seepage? All of these terms are, are incredibly confusing. So here, what we're seeing is to an extent, insurers using their sort of technical knowledge, that gap between what we know and what they know, uh, to influence the market, right? They're, they're taking advantage of what we don't know. Yeah. And I'd say the, the biggest case of that right now is that we do not know very much about flood risk in Canada. We don't know where it is. We don't know um, uh, whether just, our property is influenced by it. We just so, did a thing last um, week, two, two weeks problems. ago about storms. Yeah, and, we, and the storms was uh, it was part of our game showy show that we do it's a little game show on the radio and one of the questions ryan put together was what is the number one um you know disaster that happens in canada is it thunder lightning hail snowstorms blizzards whatever floods and the answer was floods and i had no idea that floods was number one and that was only two weeks ago i just learned that for the first time to your point you know that's that's concerning most canadians got to fall in that same boat now here's a question though about floodplains is that okay so uh, a municipality says you're good to build here. They're supposed to do the engineering and all the bits and pieces that comes with the builders when they do the approvals of the building. That's supposed to be That's there. Right. If we go build a building downtown and we get approval to do that and our engineers say this building's going to stand up, but then and they approve it and it turns out the soil underneath or something in the building tips over, you know, there is some accountability that needs to happen there. In a floodplain, if we're going to go, if if the city is going to go and say, yes, you can build there, a la Richmond or something in Vancouver, and then all of a sudden there's water everywhere and the insurance companies won't hypothetically insure there because you're on a floodplain, then whose fault is that? Is it the developer's fault for doing it in the first place and not checking if there's insurance? Is it the buyer's fault for buyer beware and buying a house that you can't get insure? Or is the municipality's fault for saying, oh, by the way, you're good to go? This is a great question. And uh, I remember a few years ago, we were doing a piece of research on should we disclose in real estate flood risk? You know, um, so uh, right now it is the buyer beware model uh, effectively across the country, right? Um, if you want to know if you're a, a, a property buyer and you want to know whether your property, the property has ever experienced flooding or is in fact in a high risk area, uh, the buyer asks the seller. Now, what is the seller going to say? The seller one may not know. The seller, you know, may have only been in the house ten years, and there may have been water in the basement. Or the seller could just say, "Well, I'm not going to sell it to you." Right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's not a lot of conditions on sales and property in Canada. So we were writing this piece, and you know, because a lot of people say, "Well, we should have disclosure um, in our real estate." And in fact, we've surveyed Canadians twice, uh, over two thousand people, and asked them, you know, should we disclose flood risk in? Um, you know, real estate transactions and an overwhelming majority say, absolutely. But when you look at it a little closer, you think then, okay, well, if we find out that a street, for instance, or an area um, is in, in a high risk flood area, and that somehow influences the value of the properties in those areas, which, you know, which could happen, um, who pays for that? 
You know, that's a liability that we don't know. Who ultimately is responsible for that? And so it, it forces us to take a step back and say, well, I don't know if we're even ready yet in Canada for these types of levels of disclosure of this type of information. If we actually aren't, if we actually aren't sure who is ultimately responsible for the liability of these poor planning decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's ultimately a hard question to answer. I mean, I've got my opinion on it. I mean, ultimately, we as a society have benefited from allowing development in some of these areas through property taxes and so on. And we didn't inform these people that they were living in high areas. They didn't know any better. So to a certain extent, it does fall on the shoulders of governments. And we've asked people who they think are responsible, and they say municipalities who issued the permit. But, you know, municipalities, I have a lot of empathy for because, you know, a lot of them are small, don't have the expertise. They're yeah. also getting lobbied heavy by developers. So that's a great question. And we need to figure that out. Well, retroactively, I don't know how you could do it proactively in the future uh, proofing, I, I think you could do it. Because if I knew that I was moving into a neighborhood that was susceptible to flooding and getting flood insurance was more, but my house cost $100,000 less, that could be appealing for some people, because they could save on a house, right? I, I remember I moved into St. Catharines, Ontario, and we lived about a block off the canal. And we were putting in a fence. And we dug a post hole. And we pulled out the auger and about a foot and a half down from the top of the dirt, the hole was full of water. (laughs) And all we did was dig dirt out. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's why my sump pump runs all the time. Now, the only reason why I knew that that was the case was because my sump pump ran all the time. And my sump pump was just pumping it to the backyard, which was just at the very back of it anyway. Why was that the case? Well, the uh, canal was higher than our house. Uh, where we were, because it was right by a lock. And everybody's house did that. Good luck getting cement here, by the way, when you have a a four foot deep hole and three feet of its water. Um, And so those things, if I had known in advance, I might have negotiated that differently in going into it. Because one of the big things for me was I need to put up a fence because I have a dog. And if I couldn't put a fence up, I might not have bought that house. So I think there is an element of that. If you and I go and say, hey, let's go buy a vacation home side by side for our families in Hawaii. And it's in a lava flow on the big island. They disclose they disclose that, and it changes insurance because, by the way, eh, lava could come through your living room. That matters, I think. Yeah, well, I, there's there's a few things you said there that that are really um, I, I think interesting. Um, <clears throat> one is, of course, we have a right to know about this risk, right? And in Canada, we're one of the we're you know we're a G seven country. Most of these countries, you go onto a basic website that the government provides. You tap in your address and you're going to get very good data on what your exposure is. So if you are looking at a particular property to buy it, you're going to get excellent data on um, in places like even South Carolina, places who you wouldn't necessarily associate with being, you know, this big climate, you know, friendly place worried about climate change. You're going to get information not only on, you know, uh, what the flood risk looks like around your house, how proximate it is, what the how likely it is over the life of a 30 year mortgage, you know. Uh, if you live in a one in one in one in one hundred year floodplain, which is generally the rules we use in Canada, there's about a twenty five percent chance over the life of a thirty year mortgage you're going to have water in your basement, right? It'll tell you that you ought to get insurance, and it'll tell you some steps that you could take to your property to reduce those types of insurance premiums. So this stuff is available; it's just not available in Canada, and that's incredibly frustrating. And to me, it speaks to a broader problem. Well, in whose interests is that serving that? we don't know about this the, the, you know they call it the, an information asymmetry in the market right that there's there's some intent to hiding some information uh that is clearly leading to poor decisions around where we live and the type of property we have 
And the second point I would make there is that's a good example. What we really struggle for in the industry is tying, even when we do produce a map, we say, okay, you know, that area is, is a high risk there. When you do the big scale studies, the large sample scale studies, we actually find that that information doesn't influence property prices um, very significantly. Uh, when a flood happens, it does, but it's because other factors are influencing it, right? It's, does it have a yard that I can put my dog in? Is it close to a good school? Does it have granite countertops? So these, this risk, and it's just human nature, right? Um, we're going to discount the risk of a flood happening, even if people tell you it is, because, ooh, you know, we're in a housing crisis. We need housing. So we have two problems there. We don't have the information in the first place. And two, we need to make sure that when we do have the information, we're using it in the right way. Abbotsford, BC. If you move to Abbotsford and it's so low, um, and if you didn't ask around, I don't know if anybody would ever acknowledge in advance somebody, some noob who's moved to Abbotsford and maybe they're coming from Toronto or whatever. And they don't know. They don't know that the Nooksack River, which is in America, not even in Canada, if that one gets uh, swollen and, and the impact it has in the Sumas River and everything else from there and the flooding and off it goes. How would you like, and there's got to be some sort of integrity in this for insurance companies or for real estate or for whatever to say, oh, by the way, welcome. Just so you know, you're going to need some rubber boots. I think I'll, I think all of these stakeholders need a, uh, a kick in the butt, frankly, and it, it probably has to come from the federal government. Um, ultimately, the federal government is Canada's insurer of last resort. When you have a big disaster, the stuff that doesn't get covered by insurance, the stuff that a, a municipality or province can't afford gets dumped onto federal taxpayers. We don't notice it. it it's not a, a huge chunk of change, you know, in the grand scheme of things, but it's completely unsustainable. And it was actually a conservative government under... Uh, Prime Minister Harper, who first first raised this issue and started to put money towards, um, you know, mitigating this risk, he, he realized, you know, they were doing a lot to find efficiencies in the government, um, you know, around, uh, you know, basically fighting the unions at the time to, uh, you know, reduce the cost, you know, reduce the, the burden on taxpayers. And in one night, well, in a few hours in downtown Calgary, all of that money that they had saved from the government was completely wiped away because now they're they're channeling all this disaster money to the city of Calgary. So. I think that um, everyone kind of has their head buried in the sand a little about this. And until the federal government says, okay, now we need to really take this seriously, we will be the ones that handle the liability associated with some of this information that isn't missing. We are the ones that are going to provide this information. And indeed, the, to give uh, the Trudeau government some credit here, they are going to do that. They are planning to put together a, uh, what they're calling a flood risk portal. So you will be able to look up your flood risk. They are doing a number of other steps too, in, in, in terms of trying to encourage insurance in some of these high risk areas uh, through various measures. So uh, there has been uh, a lot of progress in the last few years, but ultimately, you know, when we say to ourselves, you know, everybody sort of has to pay a, a, a part. A lot of people say this is sort of an all of society problem when it comes to flooding. You know, you as the property owner need to take the steps that you need to protect your property, uh, the insurer, the developer, the planner, and so on. Um, that's fine. But these catastrophic floods are tough to stop, right? I mean, no matter what you do to a, your property, if you get that one in 150 rain event and that river comes flowing up there, you know, nothing's going to stop it from getting into your basement. So I really think it is contingent upon our federal leaders um, to show some leadership. And if they don't show some leadership, you know, why should they expect anybody else to take on the responsibility uh, in the same way?
Yeah. I mean, you look at Abbotsford a couple of years ago, um, a decade ago, Calgary. I mean, there's, there was no stopping that, right? There was no stopping those exactly. storms. I mean, Mother Nature's going to do what Mother Nature's going to do. And this intersection, though, I mean, it's the, it's the neat part of the your department, actually, with school, enterprise, and development, is this intersection sort of where the enterprise part really gets in the way. You got ICBC and this whole no-fault thing that was in Quebec, I think, Manitoba, too. Um, and But now in Alberta, they started dead. A guy backs into me in a parking lot. And all of a sudden now I've got to go through this process where I could be at fault and because this guy in a, and this is going to sound pretentious, but I, 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 let's be honest about it. He was a guy in an old Kia backed into my BMW and now I'm responsible for my costs. Like yeah. that we're not being protected anymore. Like there's no, there's nobody who's taking care of us in order to do that. Right. And so what is the point at this point? Um, well, this is cynical, but this is something we've written about b- before uh, as well, that, um, you know, very quietly governments across Canada uh, don't want to deal with this problem, right? They do not want to be paying out disaster assistance. They don't like it because what they're doing is they're giving money, uh, for instance, to areas that just had a flood to effectively rebuild in the same spot. Mm-hmm. So guess what's going to happen? It's going to happen it's again. Gonna fl- yeah. yeah. It's going to flood again, right? And my big concern and why I think ultimately what we do need is a lot more political accountability. And this is why I hope we get more flood risk information coming out there and all sorts of climate hazard risk is that then people can then start relating that to themselves, right? They can go, why is the water in my, when I, when I pull out the auger, why is all that water there? Man, my sump pump is going off all the time. Um, I have no, the, the insurance company wouldn't give me any coverage down here. Which is what is going on? You know, we need, uh, in Canada, the discussion around climate change is, effectively all about mitigation. How do we do greenhouse gas emissions? We've had no discussion on how do we protect our communities from these effects, and they're coming, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. And there, ultimately, we need to start holding our elected officials to some account, because we just simply don't have the resources on our own. We can't be left on our own. Um, I can't, you know, I can't decipher and interpret, you know, a flood map. I got to put my kids to bed. I got a, you know, a day job, right? And I'm, I'm an expert in these things, right? So, um, you know, I do think it's contingent that we do need a higher level of accountability. I mean, it's going to start to happen the more and more this happens, right? Like, you know, uh, I feel for everybody in Canada that is going through this type of event, whether it's the wildfires, extreme heat, uh, or flooding. But, uh, you know, I'd like to see a little bit more sense of urgency on the part of our elected officials. There's a lot we can do. There's a lot of countries that do this better than we do here. Um, I, and I think that it, it's time we, um, yeah, I, we start ask, we start asking some questions and start getting some answers. I think it's a real a real crime when somebody is in their home and they've lost, uh, you know, important family heirlooms or whatever. The damage they've got to live out of out of their home because something has happened to flood in the basement, whatever. And I don't think there's anything worse than paying in your hundred bucks a month or whatever it is for the twenty years you've owned your home, and now you're. $25,000 invested into in, into this business's, you know, investment deals. And then you get a, well, we're not sure it's covered. I, I like, the, I, can there be more of a crime to of falsehood? I mean, false advertising, call it what you like. Those are my words, not yours. But that to me is what it feels like. It feels like false advertising Awful. and a false sense of security. And I, I can't imagine what those people are going through. I think that when people move to a place like High River, and say they find out hypothetically that their flood insurance is more expensive because the town you live in is actually called High River, I don't think anybody's going to be surprised by that. And it's not a socialist notion at all. No one's looking for a handout. I just imagine when somebody moves to a place called High River, they would like to know that, by the way, living here is going to cost you more for, say, flood insurance. And then just give them the tools to make that decision. 
here's actually a good story. High River, if you ask people in High River, and there's some truth to this, is now one of the most protected oh, communities in the country I from bet. flooding. Mm-hmm. And do you know what those people should receive in return for putting those taxpayers into de- their defenses? Yeah. They did a few things. They they did, they made hard decisions. They actually did something called manager uh, strategic location where you, the government buys out houses and moves them out of harm's way. Mm-hmm. Certainly not a cheap thing to do in this country. Now, let's see their uh, insurance rates go down. Yeah, they should, they should be rewarded by that. And that is difficult to see yet in this country. And, and so that's that's one thing we can do. Once we have this information, once we know where the risk is, we as a community can come together and say, okay, it's ridiculous that everybody in this community that's living in this particular postal code is having to pay all of these higher insurance rates because we live near this river or we live, you know, in this area. Let's invest in some uh, protection and let's bring, and then, hey, insurers, you do, you, it's a marketplace, right? We, we reduce the risk. You then offer the coverage because it's a benefit to you. You can then collect that $100 over the life of a property and make that profit. Um, so, uh, you know, th- there's there's a way that these markets need to be working efficiently. They're not. Um, it's going to require a bit of work to get them in that direction. And you wonder why people don't want to put an app on their phone to find out if they're a good driver or not because they can't trust the insurance companies and what they're going to do with that info because nobody knows what you're going to do. So I hit the brakes hard to avoid hitting a cat and now I'm a bad driver according to your app. Like people don't know. They just don't know. I, I, well, I could tell you about uh, th- those apps <laughs> as well. And, uh, you know, you have to look at, look at your insurance contract closely and look at how much um, reduction you're getting on, on, on a part of the premium that you're paying on a monthly basis, right, yeah. for, for various incentives. And it really isn't that much. Well, and then they're monetizing the data. Right. Yeah. They're, they're taking all the data and monetizing it down the road somewhere else anyway. So as they sort of take and parse out that data. So this is crazy. I would like to talk about that more. Um, Jason Thistlethwaite is here. Um, he's a professor of school environment enterprise development, University of Waterloo. And uh, now I'm angry. Way to go, Jason. <laughs> well, me, me, me too. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Shift Podcast. Are you, are you are you okay 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 are you okay with share your thoughts 877-399-9898 are you okay with switching seats oh uh no not really i hate switching seats if i have a seat i have a seat it's my seat i pick the seat mm-hmm I will only ever sit on the right-hand side in a car. I hate sitting on the left-hand side. That's because you don't uh, drive, though. I know, but even when I was a Problematic. child. Problematic. Like, no, no. I'm sorry. It's, a, it's an issue I'm very, very passionate about. I don't, I don't switch the seats. <laughs> okay. Um, that means you'll never drive unless you're in England. I guess I'm moving to England then. Right, then. Cheerio. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, switching seats. If it's a seat I've paid for, I'm not switching seats. I buy, I purposely buy exit rows, rows with more leg room. I'm not a small person. I'm 230 pounds. Um, I'm not a huge tall person, about six one, but I do find that getting crammed into small seats is very difficult for me. So I have a hard time switching my seat if I've paid for my seat to guarantee that I have the seat. Now, if I didn't pay for my seat, and it's got the same size for it, then, well, I, don't, I guess I don't mind. 
Unless it's a middle seat. That's problematic. See, we're picky. One woman has sparked an important debate, and it's your turn to chime in with us. Would you switch seats to let a mom sit with her kids on a plane? This happened to me once, by the way. It happened on a flight from Hawaii back to Calgary. We were flying on United, I believe. And it was an American airline, clearly. And our seats were scattered all over. When we checked in, we couldn't check in together, all four of us. Mom, dad, two kids. My three-year-old, oh, excuse me, four-year-old daughter was in a seat separate from us. So was my son. During takeoff, my daughter took off her seatbelt and started jumping up and down on the seat. Her mom got up, walked over to her, tried to get her to sit down. The flight attendant got mad at the mother, to which the mother snapped back. This is your problem, not my problem. You're the one who sat a baby on her own. Nobody would switch seats. After that, though, there was a couple that was flying together. They switched seats so they could, so they did it. This story, Tammy Nelson did not let that happen. But before you pass judgment, listen to her story, which she shared on Good Morning America. I don't know. I travel a lot. So I thought, and I was tired. So I thought oh, maybe I looked wrong. So I pulled up my Delta app and double checked and realized, oh no, that really was my seat. And so then again, just assuming the positive, I thought, oh, well, she must have just looked at her ticket wrong. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, but I, th- I think you're sitting in my seat. And she said, I was so surprised by what she said because she said, oh, you want to sit here? She said, oh, well, I just thought I could switch with you because these are my kids. And she pointed to the two seats next to her. And there looked to be a boy who was roughly 15-ish and then a girl who looked maybe more like 11-ish. And I immediately said, oh, you know, I'm happy to switch with you as long as it's a window seat. So before we finish Uh... the story. Here's an important detail. The woman gets motion sickness unless she sits by the window. She has trouble sleeping in other seats, too. Anyway, my reaction first was, sure, I'm happy to switch with you as long as it's a window seat. And she said, oh, it's right here. And and she said it like, oh, yeah, great. It's right here. And so I thought, oh, it must be the window seat. But then she pointed to the middle seat that was in the row right behind the seat where I was supposed to be sitting. Not even exaggerating. I had 90 minutes of sleep the night before. I had this big presentation I needed to give once I arrived at my destination. And I was just like, you have to, I told myself, like, you have to take care of yourself. Like, you need sleep on this flight. You picked the seat in advance. Stick with the seat. And I said, oh, I said, the middle seat right there? And she said, yeah, it's just right here. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry. I said, I really need a window. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to switch. And she was not happy. <laughs> Nelson said the rest of the flight was uneventful. The two children were seated next to her. They appeared to be fine. I absolutely support this woman in taking her seat because the other mom was not organized enough or didn't pay to reserve the seats or checked in too late and didn't get the seats. That's not this Ms. Nelson's problem. I, I, I think that, and especially if her kids are 15, most parents who have 15 year olds yeah. are like, please, I'm going to sit at the front. My kids can sit at the back. Yeah. 
what 50 like the the cutoff they're not children they're you know they're 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 preteens they're teenagers and the the she the the mom immediately lost me when she assumed that she could sit in that seat yeah, before without even the other person had sit there what if the person who had bought the seat had a disability and they needed that seat for a specific reason she just mm-hmm. made an assumption and took it thinking it would be fine that entitlement Oh, I'm totally on. There are times to ask for forgiveness, not permission. There are times. That's not one of them. That's a prepaid seat. No, definitely not one of them. That would be like me going down to the Flames game and sitting in someone's seat right by the glass and just saying, oh, well, my kids are down here. So would you mind sitting up in my seat up there? Sorry, bro. That doesn't fly. Um, Let's hit this one really quick. Are you okay with off-roading? Uh, yeah, it looks fun. I'd, I'd love to try it. All right. Uh, are you okay with underwatering? Uh, I'd pray above the surface, especially this year. All right. Um, yeah, right. The ambitious team of divers, engineers, and car enthusiasts in Australia set out to do something truly wild. Oh. Oh. Australia. Just drive from town to paradise and you'll see why we call Australia home. It was also for Jamie who texted in from Australia earlier and we didn't play the song. I got in trouble on the text line. Uh, driving an old Toyota Land Cruiser dubbed Mud Crab along the ocean floor underwater. That's what they did. Good luck, fellas. If it seems like something dreamed up over drinks, well, apparently it was. To take a car nicknamed the Mud Crab and drive it into the water on one side of the harbour, hoping to come out on the other. The world record we're going for is the furthest distance driven underwater by a car and the deepest depth driven underwater by a car. Now, Darwin Harbour is in the Northern Territory of Australia. It's about seven kilometers across, and at its deepest, the bottom is about 30 meters down. At that depth, there's a lot that can go wrong, or to put it another way, there's a lot to ignore. Just gotta act like it's another day in the office and just get the job done, it's really how I'm thinking about it. The rather strange project was part of a documentary on cult cars. In this case, the 1978 Toyota Land Cruiser. Voila! We're not going to be able to get this motor driving underwater. Now, roadworthy and seaworthy are two completely different things. The car's diesel engine had to be removed and replaced with an electric motor. That new system then had to be housed in a submarine-style waterproof and oil-filled casing. They spent a lot of time protecting the motor from water and much less on protecting the drivers from crocodiles and sharks. I'm pretty sure a bright orange car coming towards a shark or a croc that I've never seen before aren't going to be hanging around at all. This was actually the second attempt to cross Darwin Harbour. The first was 40 years ago and it didn't quite make it. They only got about halfway. This is like an urban myth in Darwin when they did this 40 years ago and I grew up listening to stories and it almost faded into mythology. Well, that inspiration brought together a team of about 30 people and some technologies they didn't have in 1983. Seabed mapping meant they weren't just driving in the dark, although they did hit some obstacles. Now, the trip was expected to take five to seven hours. Mud crab resurfaced to cheering crowds after about 12 hours. They answered the question, could they do it? 
question basically left unanswered is still, why? Mike Armstrong, Global News. The extra three hours it took to get there? Talk about being stressed out waiting, right? Yeah, I would be, if I was underneath the water in that thing, I would just be like, no, we cannot be like the Titan sub. It's not happening. We are not letting this happen. (laughs) Fascinating stuff. Oh, there you go. Are you okay with it? This is the Shift Podcast. System breach. Just happened. Someone hacked me. All right, a white hat hacker is someone who is a like a security guard, if you will, a locksmith that checks systems and tries to hack into them to make sure that they're working. Black hat hacker is the bad guys, the crooks, the criminals. There actually is a gray hat, which kind of walked the line of the kind of maybe not okay, but maybe an all right person. Hank the hacker is here, white hat hacker, to help us understand Facebook. So many of our uh, friends here on the shift. Or on Facebook, our Facebook group at shiftheads.ca, Hank. Uh, Facebook is terrible. Let's just start there. Oh, man. I, you know, well, for one, I got to say, I'm, I'm super excited you mentioned the gray hat as well, because uh, we, I guess we've forgotten to mention that. But um, yeah, there's the black hat, bad guy, white hat, good guy, gray hat, little sweet spot in the middle. But, um, with Facebook, you, you couldn't be more right. Their, you know, their support services are, are really bad. And to kind of, you know, if, if no one's dealt with a Facebook account before or had to go with, go through recovering their account, um, the process is really tedious. And in most cases, it ends up in the account just being abandoned. Um, we've even seen, you know, things like, people buying an oculus vr headset just just to be able to speak with the company directly and the company responded to that by not helping anyone anymore for facebook accounts that bought an oculus which was a huge step backwards uh that is that well that was one of those um those vr headsets that they purchased as a company and then that was the only way that you you i mean the help that is just not there i mean there's literally no help so that's not good and um and trying to get help from facebook is terrible so here's one thing that i did and this is not a hacking problem but i guess it relates to hacking in that uh you know you can see how you can't get help so i was an admin of my old radio page and I removed myself somehow, not quite sure how you can do that, but you can as the only admin from the page. So now there's a page sitting there with no admin. You can't get help for that. Like you can't, there's no number to phone. You can file a ticket and they like, they could see in their transaction records who the previous admins were, when you removed yourself, all that stuff, but there's nobody there. There is no help. So when someone does hack your account, it must be difficult. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I've, I even ran into that, that problem previously. And I, I, I'm blown away that you found that solution because it took, it took me hours to figure out how to, um, just recover an account that I, I had accidentally removed my, my admin from. And it, 
you know, it's very easy because of how convoluted and, and confusing they've made their new business platform. It's very easy to make simple mistakes like that. And uh, and you're right. There's no there's no announcement any anywhere saying, you know, this is how to deal with that. And mm-hmm. and especially in regards to being hacked, if uh, if your account were compromised and the hacker transfers the admin or they completely take over the account and start posting things, which we're, we're seeing happen a lot more now. Um, Meta doesn't, uh, Meta being Facebook, uh, they don't necessarily even provide a reason for not contacting. Um, but even when they acknowledge that they they understand the account is hacked, they, they don't generally do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And they don't care. Yeah, they they don't care. And you know the the nice thing though is I, there's a couple of tricks that um, the audience can take uh, if if they suffer, you know, victim to losing an account or or having their account hacked. Um, and some of these methods even transfer to other platforms as well, including Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. But um, well, let's I, let's talk about let's talk about that because the uh, the one thing that you see is that it seems to me that people will send out messages, right? Like my someone's been in my account, they send out a bunch of spam messages, right, going for links. But it seems like these crooks don't really want to. They're not really trying to like steal the account. They just send out a bunch of messages, then leave the account alone. Because some people will be able to go back in and say, you know, someone hacked my account and don't open those links and da 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 da. So it, it seems like some hackers don't even really care about stealing the account so much as they do just getting in, getting all the messages sent, and then getting out and letting you have your account back. You know, it's interesting because, and and especially now as, as things are kind of developing, you, you get so many different reasons for why someone might be in there. It might be to sell, um, you know, make fraudulent sales where they sell something, but they never actually uh, deliver it. And just to comment on on that, buyers should never use a peer to peer app like Cash App or Venmo or or PayPal or anything like that. Uh, if you're making a purchase over Facebook mar- Marketplace, make sure right. you're doing the purchase with cash uh, or even you know in person. And but the the problem is that you know hackers even got access to five hundred some odd million Facebook accounts in 2021. And the guy that did that, the hacker that did that, the only intent was to post it online. Um, Whereas now you're seeing like very organized groups that are just going on to do cryptocurrency scams or um, they're doing the grandfather scam or or the um, the, uh, trust scam where they'll say you have money waiting for you you have to pay a deposit in order for us to send the money and Mm -hmm. again best best route is just not to send any money or interact but that's the thing is there's so many different reasons that they might be in there even as far as to message you and say you know if you pay this much money then we'll give you your account back Mm -hmm. yeah so it's is it safe to say that unpredictable right Oh, absolutely. Yeah. How do you find out then, um, you know, sitting, waiting to communicate with bad guys doesn't seem like a very 
good thing by any means. That seems like stress. I mean, there is that, uh, doesn't escapes me right now, but that moment where, uh, those hackers, they use that stressful moment to be able to scam you even more because you're stressed out about it, whether they're calling in, you know, to you and, and trying to get your information and, and panic you into giving money. So, uh, I mean, how do you go about this without, without talking to the bad guy and causing yourself more grief? Yeah, that's a really good point because in in this scenario, hackers will take advantage of of the word you're you're thinking of. I think is amygdala hijack. That's and right. That's exactly what it is. So, yeah. especially with Facebook, and and listen closely here. Um, if you get hacked on Facebook, Facebook will send you a link to your email. That link that they send you will fix everything, but there's a problem that link expires in 24 hours after you got hacked. And so what you'll notice a lot of the time is the hacker will go in, they'll do everything they need to do, make changes and stay low key until you haven't noticed, hopefully you haven't noticed that link being sent to your email. And once that time passes, then the window is closed and, and the process for recovery becomes much harder. And so it, it's important that if you're using Facebook for business or even if you have a heavy personal um, presence on Facebook to uh, make sure that you're allowing Facebook's emails through your email filter. like not That's blocking. what I was going to say, because most of yeah. my Facebook emails go to spam. Exactly. And that's the case with most people and hackers know this. So they'll, they'll take advantage of that and wait for that link to expire. And then they'll start messaging friends and try to do fraudulent activity. So the, by the time you notice that the recovery link is actually expired. And I think that's one big, big area that Facebook can improve in, in terms of fixing this because it's not generally a company that you see get hacked. It's usually a personal account. And the, you know, the beauty in that for the hacker, the cyber criminal, is that it's valuable because of the established history and rapport with friends and family. They can all of a sudden pivot to potentially a thousand people instead of one company and some clients. Um, and that, that's not to say that company Facebook accounts aren't a target. They're absolutely a target and for the very same reason. Um, but it just kind that's of, fascinating. again, it, it speaks well on, I, I like how Arissa said before we came on here, education is power. Uh, right. Knowledge is power and just being aware of these things and, um, you know, seeing that email from Facebook is really important. So make sure you unblock Facebook. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Now, but you're, you're doubtful. Usually what is what happens, right? You become very, very mm -hmm. doubtful when all of these things kick in because what happens uh, now I've received this email link from Facebook that I don't recognize and panic, 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 right? So that's going to kick in for everybody as well. That moment where they're, it, it just occurs to them, like, I don't know what I can trust anymore. So again, that, that, that becomes that humanity moment where they take full advantage of that. Okay. Other tips from Hank the Hacker, if you do get hacked on your Facebook, how do you get through it? So here's the beautiful part. If you want to, and it's probably the best, you know, the best decision to just avoid clicking on that link in case it is malicious, um, there are some extra steps you can take after that link's expired. So 
Um, I'm going to send you a link for a form that people can fill out. I would call that the end all be all, but this form, I'll send it to you, Shane, and you can post it on the Facebook group. But some easy steps for anyone to follow would be if your account gets hacked, you can't use that link. There's no options available and you don't know what to do. Go to the profile URL of the account you're looking for. What I mean is just open up your browser and go to the Facebook account that's hacked. And at the top in the link, you'll see a username at the end. And you yeah, can mine is use that to Facebook.com slash I am Shane Hewitt, for example. Yeah. And you can use that to log in if the hackers changed your email. But the, the important thing here is if you've been hacked, you can actually use a device that you've logged into on the account in the past. And you can recover the account much easier by just hitting forgot password. And Now, I know this sounds really obvious, but uh, there's actually a really small button that most people don't notice, and only people who have accessed the account in the past will have access to this button. It's just a small red line of text that says, no longer have access to these, and that allow you to submit your ID and recover your account. It's usually... Um, a fairly painless process, but it's really, really hard to notice. Some people will uh, use a fake name, which they think is for for their privacy on Facebook. So you might have um, Hank Butterflies because you like butterflies or Hank Hacker as your name. I'm assuming this becomes problematic when you're trying to get back in and your, your driver's license says Hank Fordham. Absolutely. I've and, I, you know, I've dealt with this in the past where I've seen Facebook just say, well, your name doesn't match your real name. That goes against our community standards. We're not going to recover this. And then you go into a whole other loophole of um, trying to appeal this recovery process. And as much as, you know, I, I hate to tell people to put their real name online, um, in this case, it's it's necessary to protect your account and and in some cases your your friends from being exposed as as an extension of your account being hacked. Hmm. Okay, uh, so there you go. Real names are going to matter if you ever need to get back into again. Some people don't care. Some people will just abandon their account and start all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, what about some other services, Hank? I mean, we do have Instagram. That's you know the same as Facebook. But there are other ones, too, where, where people get in and they, they hack their way in, whether it's Spotify or whatever. What else have you seen from some other services that are very similar to, to trying to get them back? You know, and it's going to sound like I'm bashing on Facebook here, but Facebook and Instagram are very unique in the fact that their recovery processes are very obfuse and very hard to navigate. But um, if you're looking at something like, you know, Gmail, uh, Microsoft, um, things like that, these big mail providers, the recovery process is usually pretty simple. My biggest piece of advice for anyone trying to, to navigate recovery or even prepare for recovery on any platform is to have um, photo ID ready. And uh, most of us, that should be no problem. But you can also have other pieces of ID like your birth certificate and a utility bill. Um, 
but it, it it's important that you have real identities attached to accounts that you might if they they were lost and you couldn't recover them if the you know if the value of that loss far outweighs having to make a new account uh, then it definitely I think it would be important to have matching identities so that you can make recovery easier. Most platforms make navigating this much more quicker and much easier mm-hmm. uh, than Facebook and Instagram. They're fairly unique in that regard. Uh, one thing that I had learned when I called my credit card once, I had a service that I had paid for online. There was no way to unsubscribe from the service. The customer service number was dead. There was no unsubscribe button on the profile. Emailed it. Nobody would respond. And so I called the credit card company and they said to me, they said, well, we can't stop their payment. Um, but what you can do though is you're allowed to ask for a new credit card. Now that of course can have big implications on, um, maybe the bills you pay and it's a little bit of work to get it all done. But what you do in that particular case is you call your credit card company and say, can I have a new card with a new number, please? And they will give you, it's still attached to your account. It's still the same account for credit or whatever it is that you're dealing, dealing with. And they, um, and they give you a new number and that number will make it that they can't charge you anymore. So that, that's another way to go is to get a little bit of help. If it's something like say Spotify that you're paying for or a service, maybe your Netflix got hacked and someone was stealing your Netflix that you can get out of, get out of it because at that point your payment's just going to expire. So at least you're not paying anymore. You can sign up for a new one. There's actually um, there's a few services in Canada now. They're they're fairly new, um, and maybe I'll send you some of these as well to post on the page. But they're called virtual online cards, and it's kind of like the virtual debit card that you would get from a virtual Visa card you would get from your bank. But um, what these do is it allows you to attach your payment info. Let's say you're using PayPal, so you mm-hmm. attach your payment info to PayPal you log into this virtual card service with your PayPal account and they give you a temporary credit card number. So if you're making a purchase, you can actually use that temporary credit card number as if it were your own. And that card, if it ever gets exposed, it doesn't matter because you've, it, it's kind of like having a VPN for credit card purchases right, online. That's neat. It's a little proxy. Another one that I found that you say that is that if you do apply for credit on something like shop.com or whatever, you can go apply for credit if you buy a phone from Apple or whatever they use, uh, Affinity or Firm or whatever they're called. Um, and so they can give you a small, basically, line of credit. It's the same thing. And then you just go to your store and you buy your thing online. You use that if they accept that payment. And then it'll go on that credit card instead. And then you can actually just connect your bank account to that service and then just transfer. So if you spent $300 because you bought something online, you can use their service to pay for it and then just transfer the $300 right from your bank account to their service or your real credit card or whatever. And then you've never given away your, your information to a vendor online. So there are ways around it. You just, it takes a little bit of work. Hank can help you if you are lost out of your Facebook account. Hank Fordham is on our Facebook group. So you can just tag, uh, tag Hank on there on uh, the shiftheads.ca on the Facebook group. And Hank will do his best to answer questions and help you out if you are locked out or if you know somebody who is locked out and go through all of that. So it's our summer of cyber safety. Protect your Facebook account. Don't let other people into it. It gets more and more confusing every day. 
And when things go wrong, they really go wrong with no help. Thanks for being here, brother. I'm super happy to be here. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 